Hey everyone, welcome to the Real Talk podcast, where CRE gets real. I'm Liz Berthelet, Director of Research at NAI Hunnaman, and your witty host. Today, we're going to drop a little knowledge on the local life science market and then expand the discussion nationally. To give you some flavor on where we stand in Massachusetts, Cambridge, specifically Kendall Square, is the epicenter of biotech activity on the East Coast, which should surprise no one. The industry has experienced unprecedented growth over the last several years, leading to ultra-tight market fundamentals for lab space and very frothy rent growth. As a result, we've also witnessed the emergence of life science hubs outside of core Kendall Square, thinking Boston Landing, Watertown, Lexington, and the like. With that, I've asked two notable life science researchers in the Boston area to join me in this discussion. To my left is Lisa Strope, a research director at JLL Boston focusing on life science and healthcare. And to my right is Mark Brusso, who's in charge of labor market research for MassBioEd. Thanks for joining us today, guys. Uh, why don't you each give us a brief rundown of your background and highlight any interesting projects you're currently working on? Well, yeah, so uh, I'm Mark Brusso, I'm the manager of labor market research at MassBioEd. Um, MassBio is the industry association for the life sciences in Massachusetts. We have about a thousand member companies, um, both biotech, pharma, and associated industries. MassBioEd in particular focuses on educational and workforce development issues. Um, so in my capacity, what we do is sort of survey the job market and look for underlying trends. We project out um, both future growth, uh, we look at skills needs for um, specific occupations, with the whole idea of aligning uh, workforce training organizations and higher ed with the workforce needs of the industry. I'm happy to be here and thanks for having me on. Hi, my name is Lisa Strope. I work for JLL, a global research uh, or a real estate services firm. Um, and my role at JLL is I lead our healthcare and life science research group. Um, I focus exclusively on those two, two industries after um, spending several years leading our Boston research team. I, I moved into the national role because of my experience working in Boston and the importance of Kendall Square and the entire biotech community in the Boston area. It was um, sort of an easy transition to lead the practice nationally. Great, thanks. Thanks for introducing yourself. So we have a lot of ground to cover. Let's get started. Um, the first topic I wanted to talk about was sort of comparing Greater Boston to other biotech hubs, you know, nationally. So think New York, San Francisco, um, San Diego, I guess there's some sort of in the Southern Maryland, Baltimore area. Um, so I don't know if anyone has any opinions on how Greater Boston sort of stacks up. Um, I know New York's making a big run for us in terms of trying to really attract um, biotech and life science companies. Uh, I don't know much about northern New Jersey anymore, but I think a lot of pharmaceutical manufacturing has left that area in recent years. So I would love to hear your opinions on, you know, where you think we stack up. Sure, I can take that one. Um, uh, each year, JLL authors a, a life science outlook, and we rank all the top clusters in the United States. And, and I've been the lead author of that report for several years. And as a result, I think I've seen how the clusters have sort of grown and changed, and it's been quite a dramatic change in the last several years. A lot of that has to do with the way the industry is growing as a whole. And, and what we found really is that the top clusters have really just sort of become stronger in those years. You, you're not seeing a lot of sort of 
you know, much like you might see in the in the tech work, workforce where companies will say, hey, I'm going to Austin. You just don't really see that in the life science industry. And a lot of that's just because in those top clusters, which really include, um, as Liz said, San Francisco, San Diego, you know, Seattle, Philadelphia, New York, well, New York's trying, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, and, and Boston, of course. And it's really because of that sort of soup of, of support industries surrounding the, the real estate side of, of life sciences, and which is what we really focus on. And, and that includes, you know, the, the talent workforce that Mark will talk about more, but really it's that whole ecosphere of, you know, knowledgeable financing, knowledgeable commercial real estate, lenders, owners, developers, people that really understand this industry and can help sort of curate the risk and the growth that surround the, this, this whole sphere that's happening in the top clusters. Yeah, and I think when we think about life sciences, we think of things that companies are looking for if they're relocating or if someone, an entrepreneur wants to start up a company, you know, they're looking for access to funding. We have plenty of funders here. Um, we have a high-end, um, world-class, really, workforce. I mean, we have the highest rate of bachelor degree holders in the entire United States, and we have world-class institutions. We have MIT, Harvard, BU, Northeastern, the list goes on and on. Um, so obviously when people are looking to either start up or relocate, we're a prime, a prime state to really relocate to. Um, one thing that I do, what I would like to say is that, you know, historically it's really been, you know, the Bay Area, San Diego, New York, New Jersey. Um, I kind of did a dive into the numbers and found that, um, you know, the Boston metro area has twice the concentration of life sciences workers as opposed to San Francisco which um, surprised me a little bit. I did not expect it to be that much higher. Um, as far as biotech R&D, we have the, twice as many companies and twice the employees as the Bay Area. And, and that just really surprises me that when you look at the numbers, um, we continue to grow, yes, um, but we are at the top of the heap, at least in the United States. Um, one thing that did surprise me a little bit was that when we're looking at year-over-year -year growth in employees, um, San Diego and the Bay Area are growing at roughly 17 to 18% year over year in biotech R&D employees. Um, Boston, the metro area, is growing at about 9 to 10%. So it might be that we're just plateauing, that there's not much space left for us to go and grow. Um, but it's just an interesting factoid to chew on when you're thinking about, you know, where do we stack up versus these other big clusters. Yeah, those are some interesting numbers. Um, Going back to your point about having the, you know, twice as much concentration mm -hmm. in greater Boston, do you think the hospital concentration here has a lot to do with that? So it's less of, you know, the private sector, the Sanofis and all of those, but it's also the Mass General and the BI and, and the hospitals that have their own sort of research arm that's helping to drive that in employment as well. Yeah, and, and I'd be remiss not to mention that. And it, one of the things is that California is the number one state for NIH funding, um, but on a per capita basis, Massachusetts um, is four times higher NIH funding than California. So a lot of that basic research, that fundamental innovative research is occurring in, in Longwood, in Cambridge, in the greater Boston area, and a lot of companies are spun out out of that research, and we try to translate that as an industry into therapies that can be commercialized and you know really save lives. Um, so that's really a fundamental pillar of the growth here is that when you look at where is the research happening, it all sort of starts with um, you know these universities and hospitals that are getting NIH funding to do this really great research. 
And I think also the, the concentration issue is an important one to touch on too, because I th when I think when we think about the Boston metro area and how life sciences get con con concentrated, it's really Kendall Square, mm -hmm. you know, and moving out from Kendall Square. Whereas when you look at San Francisco and San Diego, the geographic footprint for the Boston life science community is about a 10 mile radius. When you go to San Francisco or San Diego, they're, they're, they're sort of a cluster of clusters. You know, in San Francisco, you have Oakland, you have South San Francisco, you have North County. So you're, you're really, it's, it's not the same sort of epicenter that we have here. Yeah, you know, if, if I were to stand on Main Street in Cambridge and throw a football, and I can't throw a football that far, I'd, I'd probably cross over four, five, ten biotech startups over the course of its throw, you know? So I think the density is unlike any other, you know, possibly even in the world. I mean, I know we're focusing around on the U.S., um, but it is unlike anything, you know, that's really out there. So this, this is actually a really great transition, guys, because I wanted to talk about sort of the emergence of these life science hubs outside of Kendall Square and whether it's due to cost or lack of space. Um, you know, we've seen some surprises, in my opinion, Boston Landing, if you told me a year ago that Boston Landing would have four or five, you know, really great um, mid-sized startup life science companies, I would tell you probably not, but they do. Um, you know, the Innovation District, a.k.a. the Seaport, we haven't really had anyone since Vertex until now we've got Mass Innovation Labs coming down to Tide Street. So that's pretty interesting. But then we've seen a lot of people moving to Watertown, Bedford, Waltham, and obviously Lexington is sort of like the second Kendall Square. Um, it's the longest, most established suburban life science hub. What is sort of your opinion about, you know, these emerging areas and you know, that they are far away or further away from sort of the center of Kendall Square. And I'm more talking about R&D, not necessarily manufacturing, because we can kind of get to manufacturing in a little yeah. bit. Um, but I'm sort of talking about your, you know, companies that normally would have been in Kendall Square have been moving out. What do you think about where they've been going, these sort of emerging suburban clusters? Well, I think that's it, it's it's hard to talk about that without talking a little bit about manufacturing right. and sort of where the industry is growing and how innovation is happening and and really what's happening in Kendall Square, which as as you knew as Liz knows very well is statistically at zero vacancy right. and has been for several years. I think you know doing our doing our, our our quarterly stats process is always being a little creative in Kendall Square because you're like, well, this is what's available this month. <laughs> exactly. Rent observations are very slim. Yeah. Yeah. And and so, you know, it's really forcing a lot of, uh, you know, big and small companies are making really creative decisions and trying to figure out how to really balance that tug and pull to be in Kendall Square with this the challenge of finding space and the challenge of the cost and and really the dynamics around having to, to commute and change. So I think what we're really finding is that as the, as the industry becomes more innovation and things, and, you know, the production side is becoming more flexible and more variable and, and really we're looking at more personalized types of production, we're seeing a big connection between people sort of splitting resources between R&D going to Kendall Square, small batch manufacturing going right outside the city, and really keeping that connection alive between those two sites. So I think people are getting finding new ways to really balance that need to be in Kendall Square and really trying to find ways to create nodes outside of Kendall Square. Yeah, and I think the larger international companies are not having an issue. I mean, they can build out space if they need to. I think 
one of the stats we like to bandy about is that 19 out of the 20 largest international biopharmaceutical companies have a presence um, within Kendall Square. Um, and so, you know, the likes of Shire, of Pfizer, um, these are companies that have their R&D, you know, headquarters, or at least in the near future, moving them into Kendall Square while they're doing other operations outside of Kendall Square. Because even though they have, you know, huge coffers, it still costs an arm and a leg to be have a presence in, in, in Kendall Square. Um, one of the things that, you know, we like to look at, too, is, you know, the startups. And, and the startups are also a key to our growth. I mean, these are, you know, companies that are being spun out of universities, of hospitals, of other companies, and really they're the ones that are having an issue with 1% vacancy rate, you know, 1% or less availability rate. They're the ones that are going to have troubles finding places near funders, near um, large companies that, you know, are potential buyers down the road. Um, so it is an issue, and, and, and people are getting priced out. Um, what we see in our research is that over the last two-plus years, there has been a slight, I'd say marginal, um, transition um, to the north and metro west suburbs. Um, it, it's not huge at this point, but um, at the expense of um, job openings in um, Boston, Cambridge, there has been growth in metro west and the northern suburbs. MassBio also puts out a commuter survey, and we find that a lot of industry workers are either in the city or north and west of the city. So it does make sense that a Watertown, that a Bedford, that a Boston Landing that's right on a new T-stop would be viable locations for new mini clusters that are outside of Kendall Square. Yeah, absolutely. And to second Mark's point, I think what we what we see from tenants out there in the market that are looking, it's the 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 mid-sized tenants, the twenty to, to forty thousand square feet tenants that are really finding that, that they're the ones that are boxed out of the market, and and it's really a challenge. And actually, the, I would say they're almost the majority of our requirements in the market right now. Great. So do you guys think that it's kind of this whole, you know, talk about flight to quality normally when we're in an office cycle, you see rents are down, you know, tenants that were in B space, they go to A space. Would we see something similar here where let's say, uh, you know, some space starts to open up in Kendall Square, will tenants move back from Waltham, from Watertown because they want to be there? Or do you think that these secondary clusters have some real viability for long-term growth? I think it, it, it varies, and so you have to take this with a grain of salt, but I know that, you know, once um, a company establishes a footprint outside of the city, they become entrenched, and, you know, their employees might get used to the fact that they, you know, have a shorter commute, you know, if they're out in Waltham or Lexington or Bedford or Boston Landing, they don't have to make that extra 30, 45-minute um, trek into Cambridge or Boston. Um, so I think it will be a little more difficult once um, employees are used to um, sort of working outside of Boston to get them back in. But I know the companies themselves love to be at the heart of, you know, where the action's at and where the action at is Kendall Square and has been for, for decades now. Yeah, and there's a big correlation, at least in the companies that we've studied, between where they are in their, their funding. You know, the Series A's com companies need to be in Kendall Square once you get farther down the line, closer to clinical trials. You can really plant your stake and 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 really hunker down in the suburbs and be there. So I think it just depends. Great. Now my last sort of point on this. Um, I'm actually originally from the Worcester area, so there's a lot of hype about Worcester um, and sort of these secondary clusters. I would say, and you can lump the boroughs in there, sort of Westboro, Marlboro. You know. Do they have legs as well? Because there's, I mean, I know Worcester gets a f some NAIH funding, UMass Medical is there, and they're sort of driving 
what's going on. Um, and, you know, Estellas recently, you know, leased a bunch of space in Westboro and they're sort of opening up an R&D facility there. Um, what are your thoughts about sort of these secondary hubs? Because we kind of see them everywhere. Like everyone is kind of saying, hey, we have biotech, we've got a life science park, you know, we're, we've got this institute coming to work with our university and it's kind of like, okay, well, you've got one or two things. Is it really viable? Um, you know, sort of in these secondary markets? Any opinions? I think it's it's very much a trend we're seeing across the country. I think I was I was recently um, at a site in Florida where they're, and, and I love this about the biotech industry and where it is now, but I was at a site in Florida that's a live, work, play community under construction, and their key tenant they want to attract is a life science company. And I love that. Um, you know, it's, I think this is the first time in the industry's history that they've been like the target tenant for a live, work, work, play community. But um, I think there is viability, and it all goes back to this, the, 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 the sort of strength of the clusters and the fact they've been strong for so long means they're expensive, they're overbuilt, and it's just hard to get into them. So I think the optionality of going to Worcester, going to Florida, you know, really pushing the boundary of, of what those clusters are is going to be the the wave. Yeah, so I mean, I, I guess you could call Cambridge live, play, work, right? A lot of people my age live, live, work, and play all within a few miles of Kendall. Yeah. Um, but off of, off of Liz's point, I mean, I, I actually went to high school in Auburn, Mass, so I'm familiar with the Worcester oh, area. Yeah, I'm, I'm from Rutland. Rutland. I <laughs> Mass, there. not Vermont. <laughs> I, I lived there for a little bit as well uh, oh, when wow. I was real little. Um, but, um, you know, Worcester itself is sort of, you know, they do have really, really plugged in universities there that are spinning out really high-end graduates. You know, the WPIs of the world, the UMass Medicals. Um, and I know you know, UMass Medical has that biotech park that they've recently built out in the last couple of years. So I know Abbey has a big presence there and it has been a success story. They're, they're, you know, the, the region has worked together to build that out. That being said, you know, the trend line hasn't really budged much as far as, um, you know, employment or job openings. Um, you know, there's been an uptick in investment out there and, you know, actual capital projects. But it, for the time being, in the very near future, it's hard to see them, you know, taking a huge bite out of Boston and Cambridge. I think everyone just gravitates towards Kendall Square as the center of the universe. Um, and for specific companies, you know, integrated operations companies, it might make sense to move out there because, it's, you know, the space's magnitudes orders of magnitude cheaper. Um, but for the most part, I don't see a wholesale change coming anytime soon. But it is interesting to see that Worcester is an example of, you know, a city outside of, you know, these world-class, world, world class, you know, top 20 global cities that can, you know, put a dent into, you know, life sciences. And, and it's fun to see where that's going. Great. Um, why don't we move to the labor market specifically. I kind of, you, Mark, you sort of mentioned how, you know, concentrated the industry is. How tight is the labor market? How are companies recruiting? Because we even hear on the tech side, I mean, overall our unemployment rate is really low in Massachusetts. Um, we're hearing that it's even hard to get regular tech employees. And obviously in the life science industry, some of these jobs are very specialized. Mm -hmm. So how difficult are the companies you're working with finding it to attract people? Uh, it, it's very difficult. So this, I've been in this job for near three years now, and the reason why my job was created is because companies face such vexing workforce issues. It's hard to find the talent they need when they need it. Um, one issue that you know we sort of pay attention to is you know the time to fill openings, and and you know nationwide, all sectors of the economy, it takes roughly four weeks, and it's been trending downwards since the you know Great Recession. 
Um, in the life sciences in Massachusetts, it takes you know just about ten weeks. So you're looking at three times the length wow. um, to fill an opening in Massachusetts. You know, it's as you said, it's historically low unemployment. It's like three percent statewide. A lot of these positions, and and here's another stat um, of of the technical openings in the last two years. You know, twenty percent require a PhD, but it, they don't just accept anyone with a PhD. You have to have a very specific research area that you know overlaps with the job opening itself. So it's, it's very tough, and companies come to us all the time with you know, these issues, these recruitment issues, especially at the high end. And, and really the reason why Massachusetts blossomed into the super cluster it is today, um, or at least one of the, one of the main, um, I guess, pillars of that was our high end talent. You know, we're, we're these great workers that want to live here, want to you know, create careers and lives here, and we have to keep that, keep that pipeline you know, coming with workers that you know, can fill these positions. So, it is an issue that we keep tabs on and we, we, you know, we look at because that, that is a key driver of the growth of the industry here. Yeah, and, and you know, not only are they struggling with the challenges of life science employment, I think this industry is also becoming more data analytics, more computer analytics mm -hmm. behind all the science, so they're competing for a lot of the same tech talent that everyone else is. So it's, Yeah, I didn't even think of that, but that makes sense. It's a double-sided yeah. problem for them. <laughs> it's, a huge, you know, it's a huge driver of cost. And, and what thing we looked at as sort of a proxy for supply and demand is we looked at demand for new workers and the regional supply for um, you know, graduates that would fill these positions. And what we found in our last annual report, um, or annual forecast in 2017, is that the PhD level, um, the growth in openings for those requiring a PhD, was about 114%, and um, the regional sort of supply of workers that could you know, conceivably fill those positions was like 30%. Uh, so there's a huge gap there, and at every level, um, entry-level openings outpace the growth in um, uh, graduates from biotech-related programs. So it's a huge issue, and companies are forced to relocate workers from you know, outside the region, outside the country, and that just adds to their costs. And, and companies are, are, are sort of, they, they want to find the talent locally and regionally, um, but sometimes they're forced to look elsewhere, and it's a huge driver of cost in the industry here. Are you seeing sort of the same issues on the manufacturing side? I know we're not necessarily known for our, you know, drug manufacturing, but that industry has been growing. Um, you know, we're seeing growth in that in the suburbs, and, you know, Framingham and Norwood and Norton, kind of Al Nylum and Moderna, they're kind of setting up these um, manufacturing facilities outside of the city in the suburbs is that sort of like a specialized skill that you need to work there and is that are you having a similar issue as you are in the R&D side or is it less it's less of an issue a little, little less um, the type the composition of the workforce is different um, one issue that we've sort of um, focused on is um, technician openings and these are you know historically positions that are filled with folks coming out of an associate degree program um, because there's such an over overabundance of biology four-year grads that companies really have their pick of the litter for these technician openings. So we really see that, and this, this report was actually came out in January, was picked up by the Boston Globe because companies want to work on, you know, making sure these these openings are available for, you know, the entire workforce. And we really work with them to make sure that, you know, the community colleges are getting their due look. Um, but, you know, the, the, the dynamics are different. Um, you know, when you're looking for very highly specialized PhD scientists with 10 years of experience, that's going to cause issues in, in hiring and sourcing talent. Um, when you can, you know, pull from regional um, four-year institutions, community colleges for technicians, there's plenty of folks with the fundamental knowledge of science 
and um, a few specialized skill sets that can fill these positions quite um, easily. Um, so it's a little less of an issue at that level. Great. So my last topic, this is something that I've been researching recently, um, and I've been diving into sort of the FDA approval data and sort of looking at who's getting their drugs approved and when and how many. And I know in 2017, we were sort of at, I think, a 20-year high for the number of drug approvals that the FDA has sort of pushed through. And, and we've seen it, you know, in the news where something doesn't go right with a company and the FDA doesn't approve their um, drug and their stock prices go down. And I know in the short term, it might not affect their real estate, but in the long term, we've kind of seen that. I mean, Sarepta comes to mind. And it wasn't until they got their FDA approval that they moved forward on their facility in Andover and they were able to lease more space. So I'm just kind of wondering how, what you guys think about FDA approvals. Is it a make or break? Or, you know, is that kind of why everyone's got a lot of different drugs going on and they're partnering, the big firms are partnering with the small firms to sort of mitigate the risk? Um, any opinions? I would say what, what you see most of the large um, big pharma, big bio doing is they're all reaching sort of farther out on the edge of the innovation curve to grab their, their revenue pipelines. You know, I think with the death of the blockbuster drug and new personalized faster quicker medicines everyone's trying to churn through research as fast as they can so a lot of this industry is bringing their research in-house and partnering with smaller companies so that's helping mitigate a lot of that risk I think and certainly from a landlord's perspective your tenants may be <laughs> coming from uh you know, you're, you're the one of the big bio would be big pharma companies. So you're, you're, you know, it's it's really helping to curate a better, stronger, high quality tenant mix in those buildings, even though they may be on the sort of cutting edge of drug development. Yeah, and and you know, all the easy discoveries have been made, right? And so it's getting harder and harder to um, discover a therapy and commercialize it, and. And as, as Lisa was saying, is, is that a lot of these larger companies are able to partner with or maybe even acquire these small biotechs because they're, they're, they're really the, 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 that's where the dynamic growth is happening and that's where the, a lot of the really cutting edge innovation is happening. Um, so that partnership is really helping diversify their, their I guess, their pipeline mix. Um, Massachusetts has about 20% of the U.S.'s um, uh, therapies within um, clinical trials right now. And about nine percent of the world, so it is a healthy future and a healthy outlook for the industry here in Massachusetts. And I think part of the reason is because we have such a healthy mix of big bio and big pharma with these really innovative, um, this really innovative research happening at small biotechs and at universities and hospitals. Great. This has been really great, guys. I want to thank our guests, Lisa and Mark, for hanging with me and providing insight on all things life science. Follow us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or on Twitter at RealTalkCRE for more information on new episodes, myself, and our guests. Thank you. Thank you, Liz. Have a great one.